Our New Testament reading, of course, comes again from the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in the heavens. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nations. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of God. I told you in the time of our announcements that this is a hard message. It really is. It uh, set heavy, weighed heavy on my mind and my heart all week long. On one side, we have the great appeal, the great attractiveness of Jesus. We want to tell people about Jesus. And on and 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 the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, the care of Jesus, the care of the gospel. But there's another side that we see in scripture. And that is the difficulty of serving and following Christ in the harshness, in the darkness, the meanness of this world. Those, those, those two things, they pull at us. We, we want to dwell on this side, don't we? We want to dwell with the beauty of Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me. That's what we wanted. There's another side to that. That's what we will look at this morning. Chapters 12 and 13 in Revelation. Look at the Antichrist. 
Then it takes a break, puts another focus, and then later in Revelation, the Antichrist, the subject, comes back. It's not that he just reappears again. It just goes back to Revelation 12 and 13 and takes up the story again, the Antichrist coming at the end of the age. Next week, we're going to look at the Antichrist again. In chapter 13, as you can tell, we just stopped halfway through the chapter. And next week, it's very interesting, we're going to think together about how do you recognize the Antichrist, or how do you recognize a Antichrist, but how would you recognize the Antichrist? It's not that you're going to say, oh, that creature has seven heads. It has ten horns. There's a crown on every head. I promise you, you're never going to see any This is symbolic. That's a symbolic image in Revelation. Uh, It's meant to describe the character of Satan, the character of the beast, personality of Satan, personality of the beast. And so next week we're going to say, okay, how do we recognize him? What will this creature really look like? But today... Are you sure you want to follow Jesus? Before we tackle that, let's pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, this morning, as your priests, all of us together as your priests, thank you for how you've answered our prayers, for how you've blessed, even in this very day, how you've blessed your people. And how you have blessed people for whom we've prayed. How you've healed sickness. How you have given comfort beyond imagination. How you've healed relationships between children and parents. Between husbands and wives. This morning, we have fresh prayers. We have prayers anew as your priests and We pray for John and Kaki Cruz, and thank you for how you have answered prayers this week in a remarkable way. We thank you, Father, for the strength that John gained this week. He was able to do what he hadn't been able to do. We pray you'll continue to lay your hand of blessing on him. Prepare him, Father. I pray that he will look forward with great anticipation. But what you have for him, bless Kaki and comfort her beyond imagination. Comfort both of them about Kate. We pray, Father, that these treatments will prove to be effective. Father, we would pray, even though the cancer is so serious. We pray, Father, we know you can heal her. and We pray that you would heal her, give her many years yet upon this earth. Bless John Morrison, that he would be an encouragement to her and she would be an encouragement to him. Bless the children to encourage Kate and John. We pray today, Father, for Liza Fletcher. We pray that you would restore her to her family. We thank you for the safety that she has Because, Father, 
she has a home beyond the home here. And she has a God in heaven who reigns and keeps her in his hands. We pray, Father, that you would bring mercy to this family, that you would return. Our Father, we pray as a congregation that this city needs salt, Father. This city needs light. We pray that you would cause each one of us and cause Christ's covenant to be salt and light in this city this week for the glory of Christ. We pray now that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so it will make any difference in our lives. You know, Father, this is not empty religious rhetoric. You know that I know this. And I, we know that this congregation knows it. And so we pray that in these next few minutes we would hear your voice, the voice of our Father from heaven, speak to us and speak to our hearts. We're just your children, Father. All of us, your children, asking their Father to teach them in the power of his Spirit, we pray. Amen. Are you sure, are you sure you want to follow Jesus where are we? Satan has been cast out of heaven. Even though he was evil all through the Old Testament, he seemed to have a presence, a foothold in heaven, even to appear before God. But last week, we saw he was cast out through the work of Christ in the incarnation, the work of Christ in his atoning death and resurrection and ascension. Satan was defeated. Now before that time, his hatred, all his plans had been to thwart the plan of God to send Christ. He had to stop that. He had to stop Messiah, who God had said would crush his head. But he failed in that effort. Christ came. Christ did this great work. The Messiah did this great work. So now we saw last week that the focus of his hatred changed. Look at. Chapter 12, verse 13 on your scripture sheet or in your Bible. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who was the woman? The people of God, the church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. Look at verse 17 of that same chapter. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's you. That's me. On those keeping the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. People, that ought to give you pause. Does it give you pause? That verse plainly tells us that Satan has declared war on the church of Jesus Christ. That verse tells us that Satan is at war with Christ's covenant reformed church. He's at war 
with me. He's at war with you. Now, with that introduction, we need to return to the 12th chapter for another reason. We need to clarify the phrases in that chapter that we did not explain in totality last week. And we need to take a moment right at the beginning because we need to understand them and it will help us understand the rest of the message today. So first, twice in chapter 12, we are told that the woman fled into the wilderness. Now in the Old and New Testaments, the term wilderness usually referred to Israel's time in the wilderness. Remember their 40-year journey from Egypt to the land God had promised? Well, in the New Testament, the church, after the ascension, is several times described as being in the wilderness like Israel was in the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. And that's what, what were they doing in the wilderness. They were on their way from Egypt to the land that God had promised. Well, where are we traveling on our journey in the wilderness? The church is in the wilderness today, and we're on our way, where? To the land God has promised, just like Israel had been. That wilderness they in which they traveled was a time of hardship on Israel. Well, the time of the wilderness we've seen is a time of hardship on the church. The wilderness was also a time of great blessing for Israel, for God provided the cloud by day. He provided the fire by night. To what? To guide her. He gave Israel water, manna, quail in the wilderness. Well, likewise, Christ has provided for his church in the wilderness. He's given the people of God, he's given us his written word. He's given his people the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's given the people, he's given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and lead his church through the wilderness of this world. So the woman fleeing into the wilderness is the church living in this world, this hostile world, from the ascension to the second coming. It's a type of wilderness that we're in. That's first. I want to get that out of chapter 12. Secondly, we keep hearing the phrase, time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years, or 1,260 days, or 42 months. They all mean the same thing. It's the same space of time. Time, times, half a time is three and a half years. Three and a half years is 42 months. 42 months is 1,260 days. From whence did it come? What does it mean? It came, it was first mentioned, time, times, and half a time. It's first mentioned in Daniel 7.25. I didn't put that on your scripture sheet. You'll have to write it down. And Daniel 12.7. Both times it is mentioned that three and a half years or that 42 months, or 1260 days, is referring to a set amount of time that was a time of extreme suffering. 
when Daniel, Daniel was written, Daniel uh, was born in Israel, in Jerusalem. But as a youth, he was carried off to Babylon. And he became a great prophet in Babylon, a great leader in Babylon. And as a prophet, he spoke, God showed him, gave him visions of what would happen. Israel would return from Babylon and back to the homeland. Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And he spoke of that time, and he spoke of also what would happen among the nations. There was a time of extreme suffering in that prophecy. It was fulfilled. Now, Daniel speaking in Babylon, this didn't happen for several hundred years. But in the second century before Christ, that prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled by a Greek king, a Seleucid king of the Seleucid Empire. His name was Antiochus IV. We've mentioned him before. Antiochus IV. He went by the title Epiphanes, which meant that he's God manifested. His name was Antiochus IV, God manifested. He cruelly conquered and ruled Israel. He outlawed the worship of God. He forbade the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you were caught worshiping, you were killed. It wasn't put in prison, you were killed. Went all over the land, burning all, every copy, every scroll of the Torah that he could find. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple. They could no longer go to the temple to offer sacrifices. In fact, he went to the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar of Israel. Think what an offense that was. And he put a statue in the temple of himself and said, you will bow down to this statue. You will worship me because I am God. Now, that three and a half years, even though it lasted longer than that, that three and a half years was used to describe such times. Antiochus was a type of Antichrist. By the way, it was brought to an end by a Jewish leader and warrior named Judas Maccabeus. Judas the hammer. Maccabeus meant hammer. And he was such a great warrior, such an effective warrior, that he was called Judas the hammer. He created guerrilla warfare. His tactics are still taught today in our own military academies. So in a Jewish tradition, three and a half years, time, times, time was a single year, Times two years, that's three years. So two and one is three. And then a half a time is six months, three and a half years. It became, if you would have said to any knowledgeable person in Israel, if you would have said to John in Israel, the writer of Revelation, before he wrote Revelation, if you had said, what does three and a half years mean? It means a time of suffering. We don't want that to happen. We don't want that to ever happen again. Sometimes that three and a half years 
is used to describe the church in the wilderness from the ascension all the way to the return. That's a lot more than three and a half years. So it just means a period of time of hardship. Now, we've done that bit of house cleaning. Let's come to the 13th chapter. But we have to ask ourselves, what's the last sentence in chapter 12? Where did we leave the dragon last week? Where was he at the end of chapter 12? He was on the standing. It's a strange verse. First time I really saw it. I remember thinking, how strange that is. He's been thrown out of heaven. And here he is. He's standing on the sand of the sea. He's standing on the shore. He had been defeated in heaven. He lost his foothold in heaven. was thrown out of heaven by the power of the blood of the lamb. He was thrown to the earth. In rage, Satan made war against the rest of the offspring of the woman, the church. So he's in church, he's in on the earth, engaged in a constant war to eradicate the church. And there he stood. You see there. Here this monster stood. Satan stood on the sand of the sea. You, you, all of us have stood on the seashore and just looked at this is what it was. Why does that have meaning? It has meaning because in Scripture, the sea is used to describe unrest and chaos. You know, the, the, the ocean is just never just still, just placid. There's always the tides. There's the waves. There's undulation. Sometimes the sea is used in Scripture to represent the unrest and constant upheaval among the nations. Sometimes it's used to represent the disruption and mayhem and, and cataclysm of the nations. Think about it this way. How many nations are there today? You can look that up. It's about 195. There's about 195 in the UN. 195 nations. Well, pretend that you could see everything going on in all the nations that somehow you had this panoramic, God gave you this panoramic view of all the nations. And you would see what's going on in all the different parts of the world and you'd see the civil wars and you would see the droughts and you would see the revolutions and the change of governments and all this tossing. That's what Satan was seeing. He's looking over the domain that he considers to be his. And as, as the dragon watches, an extraordinary beast rises out of the sea. That is, rises out of the disruptive, chaotic, cataclysmic, rebellious history of the nations of the world. He comes out of this. And he looks just like Satan. Remember? Satan is this dragon, and he has seven heads. Well, this creature had seven heads. And Satan had ten horns. This creature has ten horns. Satan had crowns on his head, denoting authority. This beast had crowns on his horns. The horns were a sign of power. 
Now, if, if you were sitting there and John, you and John, the Apostle John were discussing this. And you said, John, how, you know, where did this come from? What were you thinking when you saw this? John would say, I'll tell you exactly what I was thinking. I've seen this before. I've read about this before. I was thinking what happened in Daniel chapter 7. It's just like, it's like that vision. Now look with me at that for just a moment. Daniel 7, chapter, or verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up, what? The great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Verse 5 now. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. Let's skip down to verse 6. Now behold, another, and, and as I looked, behold, another like a leopard with four wings and a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given it. And after this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. Four beasts from where? From the sea. Each one of these beasts represented a powerful nation. Other place in Daniel, he, he tells us that first nation was Babylon, second nation was Persia, third nation was Greece, fourth nation was Rome. God is giving Daniel a prophetic vision of the future. Well, what was the first animal? It was like a lion. The second was like a bear. The third was like a leopard. These kingdoms, these are kingdoms that rise out of the sea of nations. Now the beast in Revelation 13 is a composite of the first three beasts in Daniel 7. The beast John saw was like a what? A leopard. But his feet were like a bear's feet with huge claws. And his mouth was like a lion's. Folks, what you're seeing, because he looks just like Satan, what you're seeing is an incarnation of Satan himself. They look exactly alike. And look how, look what happened in verse 2, the last part of verse 2, verse 2b. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. So this beast, this new beast has the power and throne and authority of Satan himself. It's the incarnation of Satan. Now this beast had credible recuperative powers. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But the mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled and they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. For he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? One of his heads has a life-ending wound. It is a mortal wound. He should have died. But he's healed. What does that sound like? It sounds like the crucifixion. Jesus is killed. And yet he rises again. This is Satan's Messiah. This is his Christ. This is the Antichrist of the letters of John. It's a lawless one from 
Paul's second letter to Thessalonians, the second chapter. Unlike, unlike the wonderful, godly, governmental ruler that Isaiah describes, remember in, as Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah from God, he says, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and what? Say it with me in your head. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will have a government. He will be a king. That's exactly what Satan is saying here. What's he say? And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. They're worshipped throughout the entire earth. They wage war desiring to kill all the people of God. God allows this beast to be a worldwide, eventually a worldwide government. Now, let's step back for a moment and put all of this inside of some kind of historical context. You can say, well, John, I thought that in Revelation we're always talking about from the ascension to the return of Christ. But this today, it sounds like something that's in the future, doesn't it? It sounds like something that's coming just before Christ returns. However, like all the other events in Revelation, this had to have meaning in John's day. He told John to read it and to understand. In John's day, right even in, in, in every other century, we've seen evidence that there are many antichrists. Remember the beast has many heads? Well, look at John, 1 John 2.18. Now, this is the same man that wrote Revelation. He's writing this letter before he wrote Revelation. And he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, in other words, his future, so now many Antichrists have come. He could look at Nero. If there was ever an Antichrist figure, it was Nero, Diocletian. John is saying that the Antichrist is indeed coming in the future, but that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. We've talked about that in the 20th century with Hitler, with Stalin, with Marxist Stalin, with Mao Zedong. There, there are Christians that want to say, well, you know, we've had all these antichrists so evil that they're directly associated with Satan all through history. So maybe there's not one final Antichrist. Well, if you think that, you've got a problem with Revelation, but you've really got a problem with 2 Thessalonians. Look at this with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by 
a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Someone was spreading the rumor, Jesus has already returned. He said, no, he hasn't. And look why he can say, no, he hasn't. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come. Jesus will not return unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Skip down to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth when and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This final antichrist, his reign will come to an end at the return of Jesus. That's what it says here. You can't take that passage any other way. Look at the, so you have many antichrists, as we've seen right down into the 20th century. But you have this one Antichrist that will be the consummate Antichrist that has not yet come. You see the rule and persecution under this beast. Under this ruler will be the worst time of persecution and martyrdom in the history of the Christian church. Look at verses 7 through 10. Also, it was allowed to make war on all the saints to conquer them. To conquer them. We're conquered. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. But look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Look at verse 10. Is anyone, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captive he goes. If he's to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he will, he will be slain. Here is a call for what? Endurance. It's hard. A call to endurance. Folks, dwell on those words. I, I had to live with this this week. It bothered me. Really bothered me. I go into bed thinking about it. I woke up thinking about it. Dwell on these words. They seem so dismal if you're a Christian. What do we take away from this? Did God give us these words just to discourage us? To send us into some kind of spiritual depression? In chapter 12, how was Satan defeated? He was defeated by the blood of the Lamb. He was defeated by the testimony of the Word of God through the believer, and he was defeated by those who did not love their lives more than they loved Christ. Wow. They were ready to die for this Christ. This morning, are you under the blood of Christ? Are you? You're going to say, absolutely. After what I've heard these last few weeks, yes, I'm under the blood of Christ. I can even say to Satan, come on, you can't accuse me. You come and accuse me, Christ has died. Say, okay, you're under the blood of Christ. Are you a witness to Christ in word and deed? Are you living out the power of his word in your life? Those are the first two steps of defeating the power of Satan. But there's a third step. 
A friend of mine was an atheist, brilliant, brilliant atheist. For several years, we debated back and forth about the deity of Christ. One afternoon, I was leaving his house. I'll never forget this. I can tell you exactly where I was standing. And he stopped me. And he said, John, you know that there are nations in the world where you would be imprisoned and you would be tortured and probably killed because of what you preach and what you say. Now, those were his words, not mine. And he didn't say it was anger. He didn't say it hoping that I, this would happen to me. In fact, he didn't want it to happen to me. He said, are you aware that's what could happen? You know what? He was agreeing. And I told him, I said, you're agreeing with Scripture. You're agreeing with Scripture. So just step through this with me. When you're under the blood, Satan can no longer accuse you of your sin. The sin's been atoned. The debt to the law of God's been satisfied. You can say, Satan, you, Christ has died. That's done. So what's next? Second step is that you're living this out. Salt and light in the darkness and rottenness of the culture. Satan can't stop that. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's his answer? I know what I'll do. Here comes Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. Mr. Outlaw it all. You do this, you die. That gets rid of them. My friend was basically saying to me, John, would you follow Jesus if you lived in North Korea? And suddenly you were found yourself there. Would you follow Jesus? Would you follow Jesus if you lived in China? You realize if you lived in either one of those places and you said, my faith is in Christ, your children would not be able to go to any school. You wouldn't be able to have any kind of elevated job at all. I was, read a story not long ago of a Russian general who was converted. This was back during a period of the Cold War. He was converted. He was serving in Vladivostok. And you know what they did to him? They took him to a parade ground and they, before his family, they stripped off all of his medal. This was a decorated general who was declaring himself for Christ. You know what they made him do? He became the janitor. He cleaned the latrines from a general cleaning the latrines. That's what would happen. North Korea it's not only children couldn't go to school, you couldn't have a job in North Korea, you would be re-educated. An effort would be made to rehabilitate you, to make you, to help you adopt an atheistic world and life view. And if you didn't submit, you would be dead in North Korea. What do you do with that? 
You see, we want to say to the unbelieving world, we want to say to the unbelieving drug addict, you need Jesus. We want to say to the unbelieving adulterer or adulteress, you need Jesus. We want to say to the racist, you need Jesus. We want to say to the person living for material things, you need Jesus. We want to say to the married couple on the edge of divorce, Jesus can save your marriage. Now, you know what? Those are true statements. I'm not making fun. Those are true statements. We need to be saying that to the world. So when he or she goes to Christ, then they say, okay, I want Jesus. What does Jesus himself say to them? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 on your scripture sheet, if anyone would come after me, you want to follow me? What's the first thing you do? You deny yourself. What's the second thing you do? You take up a cross. What is denying yourself? It's dying to self. What's taking up the cross? The cross is a place of death. It's dying to self. And then Jesus said, take up your cross and what? Follow me. When you follow Jesus, and he defined this. This was right out of the gospel. He said, you've got to love me more than you do your father and mother. You've got to love me more than you do your son or daughter. Do you love Jesus more than you do your children? Do you more love Jesus more than you do your grandchildren? Wow, that's hard. That's what Jesus says. Following Jesus means loving Him more than children, wife, husband, parents, money, vocation. Loving Him more than, than your own life. Jesus does break our addictions. He saves our marriages and our children, our families. But it's on His terms, not ours. We cannot say, hey Jesus, thank you for saving my marriage. Now I'll go on my merry way. It doesn't work that way. Do we dare go to the world and say, look what Jesus will do for you? He once called 12 men. You know their names. In Israel. He called them. 12 of them. One turned out to be a traitor. One, John the Apostle, was tortured in exile. The other 10 were martyred. And they went out into the world from India to Spain, testifying to Jesus Christ. And ten of them were killed. Martyred. You know what the word martyr means? I'll remind you. The word martyr in Greek simply means witness. They saw something in this. As all these thousands and tens of thousands of people were being martyred, people were being converted. This was the greatest witness someone could have. The world said, look how those people die. I want to be able to die like that. So when Jesus called Peter, follow me, Peter, he knew he was calling him to die, not just to die, take up his cross. He was calling Peter to actually die on a cross in Rome. So the question before Christ's covenant, church this morning are you sure are you sure you want to follow Jesus 
It's not just about a beautiful choir and singing hymns. It's about that. Did you, did you follow Jesus in North Korea? Martyr me if you will. I'm going to follow Jesus. Is that what you would say? That's why Jesus gave us the book of Revelation. He was saying to us, the world really is this wicked. Satan is real. He's powerful. And if you follow me, he hates you and he's at war with you. So many Christians read Revelation wanting to be fascinated. You want to be fascinated. You want to debate all these symbols. Tell us what these symbols mean. Tell us what this monster means. Tell us what this means. We want to debate whether you're all-mill or post-mill or pre-mill. If that's where we are, we're missing the main point that Jesus is making in the entire book. Revelation, there's some questions in Revelation. I don't know the answers to them. But I do know this. I do know this. Revelation tells us that millions of followers of Christ will be killed for their faith, not just in the first century, but down to the 21st century. And there's a 25th century, it'll still be there. That's the major purpose of Satan in this world, to wipe out any vestige of the church of Jesus Christ. Folks, I wish I could come with an easier message. I would give anything to have come with an easier message this morning. But it would be unfaithful to the text. There's an old country hymn, mountain hymn. Some of you know it. I wish it was in the Trinity hymn book. Victory in Jesus. What a hymn. Victory in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus. We will never be defeated. We may be killed. But we won't be defeated. So are you sure? Are you sure? You want to follow this Jesus. There's an answer. It's in our closing hymn. It's a a hymn that dates back, it was written, I think, in the 19th century. That's when it was rewritten. But I think the original writer got it from a monk uh, that wrote something like it, a hymn something like it, back in the 8th century. Are you weary? Are you languid? Hymn number 477.